Hi, I'm Shania. And I'm Evita. And you are listening to the 25th episode of Making It Women in Film. A podcast where we sit down with women working across the film and TV industry to talk about their experiences, advice, and the importance of diversity in front and behind the camera. Today, we are joined by the award-winning writer and director, Gretel Claggett. How are you doing? I'm doing well, ladies. It's great to be here with you. Amazing. Um, and before we get into your amazing films and achievements, I want to date back a bit. I know you've talked before about how your dad was a cinephile and essentially built a home cinema. So it wouldn't surprise people that you have that passion for films as well. Um, yes. Do you have a standout moment in your life where you fell in love with films? Oh, that's a great question. Um, you know, as you mentioned, yeah, my dad collected 16 millimeter films um, and he was a cinephile in terms of uh, the golden age of cinema. Um, so I grew up watching, you know, the Charlie Chaplin classics, the, um, uh, you know, uh, on the road photo, uh, photos, on the road films, um, uh, Bing Crosby um, and uh, the Marx Brothers and Fred and Ginger movies and essentially things that he had watched growing up. And, um, and the cool thing that he would do is he would actually splice together, um, you know, kind of the previews, the coming attractions. And, um, and then also because uh, he came of age during the war, you know, kind of those newsreels. And then afterwards, the cartoons like Betty Boop was one of my favorites. Um, so, um, so, you know, and then my mother conversely started uh, doing character roles in semi-professional and professional theater, summer stock. Even though I grew up in a very small town, Hannibal, Missouri, on the banks of the Mississippi River, um, famous because Mark Twain um, grew up there. That was Samuel Clemens' boyhood home. Um, but there was a great professional summer stock theater there called the Ice House Theater. So my mother, who uh, was uh, an incredible character actress, um, and, and my mom's family actually has a lineage of artists. My grandfather was a musician. Um, you know, there were painters and glass blowers and, you know, all sorts of, and actors actually um, on that side of the family. Um, so it was kind of, you know, I, 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 even though I was in this small town, I just was always surrounded with live theater, um, with people working in the arts, and then my father's passion for film. So in terms of like a moment um, where I really fell in love with film, um, as a child, uh, you know, I do kind of remember, and it's funny to think about this, he would have a big screen and I would get so wrapped up. I do remember this, but of course my parents would tell me about this. I would get so wrapped up in the film that I'd walk up to the screen and I'd try to go through it <laughs> because I wanted to like go inside the movie. Um, so yeah, I think it's hard to pinpoint any one moment. I mean, film was always part of my consciousness and uh, what originally brought me to New York was uh, my love of acting. And, you know, so, so that's why I ended up in New York City. Um, but it was years later, really, when I thought about writing and directing my own films. Mm. Yeah. And we'll get to all that, but it definitely sounds like you had so much artistic energy around you just growing up. And so I know for a long time, you had a focus on prose, theater and performance. Um, yes. So when was it, was it about the story that you wanted to tell that shifted and made you want to pursue it in film in a visual sense instead? Yes. Um, you know, it's interesting because uh, I, I think like a lot of people, but perhaps women in particular, um, you know, I, I'll go back to, I really do believe in, art as being a very powerful transformer in our lives and something that can actually save lives. Then I feel like for me, being involved with theater from an early age really saved my life because I, growing up, I was 
sexually abused. Um, there was a lot of trauma going on. Of course, you know, I wasn't vocal about that. I didn't really come out and tell my parents until I was, um, I think, 16 years old. Um, so I was able to, by acting and, and losing myself in films, in stories, I was an avid, avid reader. I mean, I would read, you know, uh, I, I would read novels like Theodore Dreiser's American Tragedy, you know, when I was very, very young. And I remember also, you know, in my room acting out scenes from like Eugene O'Neill plays you know, so it was always something that helped me to express my emotions that I couldn't express in my own life. Um, and I think, you know, sadly, um, and, and I do believe at this, at this moment that everything happens for a reason. I really didn't, I guess, think that, oh, I could do this. I could make a movie. Uh, until much later. And uh, a defining moment for me was, um, you know, I have a book of poetry, Monsoon Solo, Voices Once Submerged. Within that, there's the poem Happy Hour, which I wrote, um, you know, about some of that early trauma. And I would oftentimes read that poem in public um, or speak it aloud. And people would come up to me and be very moved by it and want to share their stories. So there, it just kind of occurred to me, like, I could make a film about this. And I guess I just had to get to that point where I had been told for a number of years with my writing that it was very visual. Um, I had people saying, oh, you should be writing for television. This is, you know, because I had the theater background and, and my poems, my, my poetry professors at Sarah Lawrence College would oftentimes say like, this is great, but like you're trying to do too much in this one poem. <laughs> you know, maybe you should consider writing a novel. <laughs> um, and, and so, yeah, I guess that defining moment was really, um, you know, after a series of no's about a certain other project I was working on that had that as an element of it, I just, I thought, you know what, why not? Why can't I make a short film? And um, so I, I think oftentimes we, I think we come to things when we're meant to, and I certainly fell in love with writing and directing film. And now I had done corporate videos. I had been a producer in the kind of agency realm, working for brands, which is something that I still do. Um, but I had never thought like, oh, I can express my own voice this way. I can go beyond the, the written page, which I was doing, um, and actually make a movie. Um, so, you know, who knows why these things happen. I mean, I really now, as painful as all the no's were, and I'm sure as you both know, and the audience listening knows, um, as an artist, you're going to get many no's before you get a yes. And there's actually a great poem, I think it's by Wallace Stevens. Um, I don't remember the entire poem, it's short, but I think the final line is something to the effect of, after the last no comes the yes. And so it's really having that tenacity, right? So, um, yeah, so uh, it, it just kind of, I, I don't know, it just kind of came to me and then I started talking to people about it. And then, uh, you know, uh, and then I set my mind to it and I, and I did it. <laughs> and it was terrifying, you know, because you think like, oh, uh, and especially putting something so personal out there too, um, you know, that can be very, um, uh, it can be frightening, you know, when you're putting something that expresses so much vulnerability out there, which Happy Hour does, I think, much more so than Storm Chaser, although I do believe that anything we create, there's a lot of us within it. Definitely. I love that so much. And I really relate to, you know, that survival within arts and uh, using mm -hmm. it to, you know, both escape, but also to, in a way, treat yourself and the things you're going through and seeing it in different perspectives and seeing it in different relations and I think that's been really important throughout my entire life as well. Yeah that, that's great and I think that you know the other thing as an artist as a creator knowing when we know that 
films, television shows, pieces of literature, music have helped us when we can get to a point where we can refine our craft and, you know, make something that, um, I, I, you know, the process of making is very transformative. And I think especially if we can get to a point in our own transformation where we can make something that then can go out into the world and hopefully help other people at least a little bit, um, that's, you know, that's a really, regardless of, you know, there's all this stuff with the business, which is a whole other matter, which I'm sure we'll be talking about. Um, at the end of the day, I think you can never go wrong if you stay true to your own vision and your own intention as to why you're creating something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> with all these different experiences you've had from getting a master's in fine art to acting on and off Broadway, from working as a saleswoman and writing poetry, how do you find that these influence your storytelling ability? Hmm. Well, um, I think that, you know, that is... Actually, that's part of what I love about creating, writing, and directing in particular, because, uh, or, or even directing, if I'm directing something that someone else has written, um, uh, I, I get to kind of be a part of that entire process. And so certainly, you know, I can bring my, eye, my, my writerly eyes to um, a piece of work and contribute in that way. And then I, of course, have a deep love of and respect for the craft of acting and actors and what they do, which is a very tough job. <laughs> um, uh, and then because of my years, you know, I, and I'll talk about the selling in a little bit, but, but I also worked as a producer um, of uh, more branded content, like I said, videos. Um, I did a lot of live multimedia work where I was producing and creative directing. So I really fell in love with the uh, visual, you know, with visual artists and, and what they bring to it. Uh, so whether working with a DP or someone in post doing after effects and editing, of course, you know, a, a film is made uh, first on the page and in pre-production, then when you're filming it, it becomes a different story, you know, because you have the actors and you have the crew and you have other ideas that uh, hopefully you're holding true to your vision, but you're being open enough to incorporate uh, ideas that are enhancing the vision and, and bringing that to life and allowing the actors space to surprise you um, and to bring their own point of view to it. Um, and then in post, of course, that's where the final storytelling is made. And I love post-production and have a great respect for all of the artists and technicians. So I think all of it just kind of fed into it um, in terms of, you know, I, I did spend about a decade um, in sales. And of course, Storm Chaser has to do with uh, selling. Um, uh, I was not selling, you know, door-to-door -door, uh, storm door supplies, but I am very familiar with the, um, and, and certainly it's changed a lot, but I definitely, when I was in sales, I came in at a time where there was a very um, all boys club going on in the particular realm I was in. Um, and, you know, the hard sell, the, you know, some of the shenanigans that would go on. Um, and really, I think in terms of American culture, I mean, that's the other thing as an artist that I really, love to do is to kind of incorporate uh, socio-political uh, tropes that are happening and address issues, hopefully not too on the nose. I mean, I try to do it in a nuanced way, um, but um, I really think that American culture, um, you know, there's a lot of selling. I mean, we're so steeped in capitalism. And so even if it's your own personal brand, it's like people are always selling you something which uh, I also, because I worked in sales, I have a great respect for salespeople who earn their living that way because it's not an easy way to learn your living. 
I also sometimes have a cringe factor <laughs> with it because, um, you know, because of some of my own personal experiences, not all of them were bad by any means. And I met wonderful people. So, um, but uh, yeah, I think that, you know, and I think that's true for all of us. I think that as a creator, like if you have a story that you're passionate about telling, you know, we're not just, it's like when you go to work, you're that person. And then when you're at home, you're another person. We are holistic. We are multidimensional, you know, human beings. Um, uh, so I think that uh, that's the fun thing about creating is you, every experience you can pull from, you know, you can mine from, whether you write about it directly or not. You know, you could write in the voice of a 90 year old man being a 30 year old woman and use some experiences. You might draw upon your grandfather, you might draw upon, you know, a teacher you had, or, you know, and then there's a 90 year old man who was a railroad guy within you, you know, in within your imagination, right? So we're always pulling from everything. Um, and sometimes, you know, to speak to the selling thing, like I did learn a lot about business, which I think is important for artists and creators to do. Uh, and that's sadly something, like when I was going through theater school, we didn't really focus on that that much, you know? And, uh, and, and, and it's rough out there and it is a business. And, you know, being casting things, I mean, there are so many talented actors and it's always, it's so exciting to go through a casting process because you get to see all of this amazing talent, but then you have to make these really painful decisions because most of the time there are multiple people that you see who could do the job and do it really well. But at the end of the day, you're casting for an ensemble, you're casting, you know, people have to fit together, you have to find that chemistry. So, um, what was my point about this? I'm rambling a little bit. Um, let me bring it back. Um, uh, business. So when I was in my big sales career, there were times where I was thinking like, because I was very successful at it, but there were times where I'm thinking like, what am I doing? Like, what what is going on here? Um, and looking back, I mean, that's the thing. Sometimes we don't understand what's happening for us in the moment, but if we kind of can adopt, and it's hard, like right now, you know, many people and especially people in the arts are suffering with, you know, this this pandemic with a lot of um, systemic upheaval and, um, you know, in the US, I mean, we have a lot of, I mean, I think it's all over the world, really, there's a lot of joblessness. Um, but if we, if you can kind of think like, okay, this is happening for me. And if I can get through this, you know, this is an experience that I can use to grow and to expand. And of course, if you're writing and developing material, I mean, everything is grist for the mill, as they say. So, you know, even those experiences that when you're in the midst of it, you're like, why, <laughs> why is this happening? Or why am, you know, why am, in, why am I in this job that maybe feels like a dead end job to you at the time? Exactly. I think exactly. You can really draw lessons from anything uh, if you look for it and things you won't even realize people you've met and their experiences and yeah, different relationships and different reactions. Everything can really be used. Of course, sometimes you do have to keep things sacred, I think, having having yeah. something that's not just used for, you know, your work. Yeah. Well, I think, Evita, to your point, I mean, I think it's like, I think it's all about intention, too. And, you know, that's where, like, writing memoir and very personal things, especially when you're exposing something that maybe um, you felt victimized by or, um, you know, something that somebody, you know, somebody done you wrong thing, right? Um, I think it's really important to be able to write from a perspective, well, what's your intention for sharing that, first of all, and then to also write from a perspective of, um, you know, hopefully you can get to a place where you're writing from a perspective of this is what happened, but also kind of owning your part in it. 
and not demonizing, you know, and certainly, I mean, if you look at politics today, right, there's so much polarization and demonization of anyone who doesn't believe exactly what you believe and, you know, not you as in you, but, but uh, what one doesn't believe. So, um, yeah, I think that, uh, I, but I think you're right. I think that <clears throat> there have been cases where people have written about things then maybe you know there 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 should be some sacredness to certain things. I agree with you, and and I think that that comes down to intention. Sometimes people will do tell-alls, obviously to make a buck, which isn't the greatest intention behind anything that you're creating. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, moving on to actual filmmaking. Uh, so you obviously have a very particular love and fascination for using these different types of technology and cameras. And, you know, you're talking about editing as well. Um, what do you find are some of your favorite ways to enhance storytelling by using these technologies? Um, well, I always believe that technology um, should be an organic choice within a story. So uh, for instance, a piece that I did um, that was a branded content piece, I'll talk about multimedia and then I'll, and then I'll talk about Storm Chaser. Um, uh, it was a piece about, it was for IBM and it was a piece about um, cognitive, uh, about Watson and, and, and making cognitive um, computing essentially um, an art form. And so uh, what I pitched and, and what we ended up working with was this new technology called Notch that allows you to do kind of these huge, beautiful 3D renderings, visualizations in real time. Um, and that was part of what IBM was doing with cognitive um, uh, wasn't computing. I'm, I'm, I'm blanking at, you know, what, uh, cognitive marketing. That's what it was for. And so when I got the idea, I mean, of course, I, I called a friend of mine who I collaborate with on those types of projects a lot and was like, would this be possible? And um, we had never done it before, um, but there was this new technology out there and I, I, knew that it would, I knew that we could figure it out. So, so in that sense, really the art itself that we made for that opening experience was kind of an organic, representation for what cognitive marketing, you know, with Watson was doing, making it an art. So we had a live artist and we had these pop and lock dancers dancing with the visualizations and, um, and it was a big hit and it was so much fun to develop and work with a lot of different types of artists on. And it was kind of, you know, it's always kind of thrilling and terrifying too, when you're using very cutting edge technology in a live realm where you basically have one shot in front of an audience of about 5,000 people. So if there's a screw up, um, <laughs> it's not good. Um, and, you know, technology is tricky. So sometimes, uh, you know, there can be hiccups. Um, but that, you know, so whenever I'm thinking about using technology, it always has to really be related to the story. With Storm Chaser, because you know, as 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 you both know, um, there is it's a there is a lot of metaphor going on, right? Um, so there is an internal storm, but there's also this real storm, this external storm that is uh, heading towards Shamrock, the town in which the story takes place. And so for that, um, you know, I had to make a lot of decisions around how I was going to do it. And, you know, there were a number of people who were saying like, oh, you should do CGI and, you know, um, build out like these 3D models. And, and first of all, I'm an independent filmmaker and, you know, I didn't have unlimited budget. <laughs> um, and I did a lot of research and I was lucky enough to uh, come across these two wonderful real uh, storm chasers, this um, Skip Talbot and Jennifer Yule, uh, Brindley Yule, who are who chase tornadoes together in the Midwest, and he's taken some beautiful 4K footage 
And I got the script to him and he loved it and basically said, I understand it's a passion project. Storm chasing is my passion project. So I, and I love the script. I love your intention behind it. So I'll give you 4K footage, like any footage you want to use, you may have, which was a huge blessing. And I had actually talked to some other storm chasers who wanted to charge a lot of money for 4K footage <clears throat> that I did not have. And then Jennifer takes these amazing artistic photos of storms. So she also contributed uh, her beautiful art photography of storms to the film. And so once I knew that I had that, then I had to kind of figure out like, how can I create this storm? Now I knew that I couldn't, I, I could create it somewhat realistically, but because it, we're also dealing with metaphor too, I wanted it to be metaphorically visual as well, if that makes sense. So there's memory, there's the actual storm in real time, there's the the film begins in a sense with a memory of a storm. And so um, and it was interesting because uh, Skip and Jennifer actually in, in, in talking with them, you know, they said, I think it's great that you're gonna do, I decided to do composite. So, <clears throat> and I'll talk technically a little bit about that because that's a tricky process. Um, but they really thought that it would be more realistic than all the CGI. And they were saying to me, actually these big films, you know, with Hollywood, with all the stuff going around and, you know, this huge CGI stuff, they're like, that's not really what it's like. That's not really what you experience when you're standing there looking at a tornado in the distance or even kind of up close touching down. So, um, so that gave me a lot of confidence. I mean, that made me feel a lot better because you can oftentimes, this is another thing, when we're making independent films, we feel like we have to have all the bells and whistles. And yes, I do love technology. Um, I did not, I, I did from the city of St. Albans in Northern Vermont, which was one of the locations. Well, that's the location where we shot the big chase scene. Um, uh, in the present day, the big chase scene with Bonnie Blue uh, driving in her truck. Um, fortunately, the city of St. Albans, the fire station gave us their crane for like a half a day. So I was able to get kind of that big, you know, crane shot. Um, I would not have been able to afford that had the city not granted us that, um, which I'm deeply grateful for. But I also did a lot of other overhead shots that I didn't use drones or cranes that literally it was like DPs going up on ladders and you know <laughs> and and tilting the camera down and having the actors look up and you know so kind of old-fashioned ways of doing things um once I kind of started working through the visual style so in terms of the compositing I I kind of you know I went through a lot of footage and then found the shots that would work best. And then of course it becomes a matter of storyboarding and working with your DPs and working with your editor in post kind of going through it and saying, okay, for this shot, we're going to lock the camera down because anytime you're compositing that camera has to be locked down. Um, and then of course, you know, the time of day and there's so many factors that go into it. Um, and then of course you just pray that when you get into post, it's gonna work and, and work well. The weather you cannot control. And that was, that was we had challenges um, during the shoot uh, on a couple of days with weather. Um, so yeah, I, you know, I do love technology. I do, uh, I love pushing the envelope. Um, and I've been fortunate, you know, I think with Storm Chaser, I was fortunate to get um, Sony Venice cameras. We were the first indie crew to use uh, Sony Venice Sinalta cameras, which are gorgeous cameras um, with uh, Sigma full frame lenses. Um, and, uh, you know, could the film have been shot in a different way with, uh, you know, uh, a lower end camera? Sure. At the end of the day, it is about the story. So I think that the, but, but it is a very visual story. So that's why I pushed and, you know, that's why I pushed for, because I did want it to be like this kind of visual, um, visually lush, 
visually metaphoric story. So I think the story could have been told using lower end cameras, but probably not as well. And, uh, and, and conversely, you know, there are things that I look at where I wish maybe I could have had a little bit more storm or had a little bit more whatever, but, um, you know, as an indie film and especially operating in metaphor, I'm pretty happy with it. And I actually think that part of the lower end of it serves the story better than had it been like fully blown out with CGI and, you know, all of that. So it's real, it's grounded. It's grounded. Yeah. Because the other way then it, you know, I mean, We've all seen those big movies that, I mean, they can be fun to watch, but then you kind of, it, it, the story becomes about that. So I guess to sum up the technology thing, <laughs> you never want the story to be about the technology. Yeah. <laughs> the technology needs to serve the story. Mm, exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And um, with Storm Chaser, can you tell our viewers a bit about the concept and the process of getting it developed? Yeah, um, so uh, both Happy Hour and Storm Chaser are based on poems I've written. Now, I don't, not every piece I write is based on a poem. I have a couple of pieces in development now that are not based on poems, but those two just happen to be. So Storm Chaser, the concept really came to me number of years ago now, uh, I guess the first moment of conception was when a friend told me over breakfast that she was dating a door-to-door door salesman. And I was like, excuse me, what? And she said, well, he lost his job. And so he's selling storm doors door-to-door. And that just struck me as kind of funny and like, I, I don't get it. And so I started, you know, and I was writing a lot of poetry at the time. Um, and uh, working on my collection of poetry. And so I, I did research and I found out that, you know, there are these storm chasers. Um, of course, storm chasers, we all think about these brave um, men and women who go out and, you know, uh, and, and, and chase after real storms and get this beautiful footage. And, and of course, there have been many incidents in the news of people losing their lives, unfortunately, doing this. It's very dangerous. Obviously, there are some people in it for money. There are some people in it just for passion and for the love of Mother Nature. And I was inspired by those stories in doing the research on that end of people who really feel very alive and connected to Mother Nature when they're, you know, witnessing this. Um, and being from the Midwest and Tornado Alley myself, um, you know, I, I, I never saw one, but I did run to the basement a few times during a tornado warning, you know, where you have to get down into the basement. Um, so, but what fascinated me was that storm chaser was also a derogatory term for these, and they were typically sales guys who would go door to door selling shoddy materials. So roofing, siding, shingles, you know, storm doors um, in these weather-torn areas. And they would actually follow the, you know, follow the weather reports and either before a storm hit neighborhoods and try to sell them things for the, you know, the the storm coming or after the tornado um, or hurricane or what have you has devastated an an area, go in there to sell them things. And the reason they're called storm chasers similar to ambulance chasers is they go in and they oftentimes not all of them but oftentimes they'll sell these cheap shoddy products and over promise so promise you that your insurance don't worry don't worry your insurance you know will take care of this or will more than likely cover this and uh, and then people you know who are already devastated um, become further devastated. So it's a form of predatory, uh, predatory uh, capitalism. So um, disaster capitalism. So that's what really hooked me to the story. And then I started thinking about that. And of course, there's a lot of um, uh, there's a lot of that going on in a lot of different realms. And um, and I ended up writing a poem in which the um, character of Don Stuckey, who in the film is the office manager 
uh, who's stuck in a joyless job and he's he's really, you know, a kind of a brown man living in a white man's world and, you know, um, but in the poem, Don Stuckey was the storm chaser. And that poem really, it's called Storm Secrets. It really deals with America's celebration of bad behavior. So the poem is similar, but very different than the film Storm Chaser. There are seeds of, of the story. When I started expanding out the script, and the reason why was it just like that character just kind of kept haunting me when I was, you know, Happy Hour um, uh, is a very different film, much more experimental, uh, lyrical, uh, non-linear narrative. So I wanted to do something completely different. Um, and so that character just kept knocking on my door, really, you know, and I was exploring other things like, well, maybe I'll write about this, but it just kept coming back. So I started developing the script. And then at a certain point, I decided to gender flip. And so Bonnie Blue had been the office manager, and then I flipped them. And then as an exercise, I thought, let me see what I don't have to change, you know, and, and keep it the same. And so that was really an interesting experience. Obviously, I had to rework certain things. I cut things, I expanded things. And, you know, you're always kind of um, rewriting through production, even, even if it's little tweaks. And then, like I said, in the edit, you know, you're maybe shifting where a scene goes or cutting certain things that you thought you needed. Um, um, sometimes you have to do reshoots. Um, so yeah, it, it was a very interesting development. I think a lot of times, and this is another thing I would, you know, want to say to those listening, um, when you're writing, I, I think it's really important to allow yourself the freedom to not know and to really allow your subconscious, your unconscious mind to guide you because sometimes things will come out. You have, it's like, I don't know what this means, I, but keep going with it because I find that that's where the juiciest material comes. When we try to write from a very formulaic, and of course you need structure, you need, a, you need craft and you need structure, but especially in the messy creative process, you kind of have to allow yourself the freedom to just like, you know, let it all come out. And, and then the characters will really start telling you who they want to be and what they want to do, which is, um, which is a really cool play, you know, like when that starts to happen, oh my goodness, that's just, you know, and you're laughing and you're crying with them. And when you can be surprised, um, you know, I think it was Robert Frost who said, no surprise in the writer, no surprise in the reader, no tears in the writer, no tears in the reader. You know, and the same is true if you're writing for film or television or any visual medium. You've got to put yourself in every character and kind of live that, I think, to really get a story that's very alive. Exactly, exactly. Now, to get more into, again, talked about the technology, uh, but some real practical advice. What do you think, if you had to say, what's the most important thing you've learned about indie filmmaking throughout making Happy Hour and Storm Chaser. Something that you did not expect you had to like maybe do or something you've really realized how valuable it is. Oh my. <laughs> there, are so, there are so many so lessons. Many. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's so many lessons. Um, I think that you know, maybe the most important lesson is that when you're an indie filmmaker, especially when you're when you're writing and directing, um, it might be different when you're part of a team. So maybe somebody else wrote it, and you're directing, and someone else is producing. Which I'm. Um, I'm very um, honored and privileged right now that I'm, I'm working on a, a short, short project um, with two dear, very talented friends of mine. So um, we do, we are kind of splitting things three ways. Um, so that's a different, uh, you know, a different experience and a different 
and and everything has its advantages and disadvantages too because you know when you're kind of on but you're never on your own in film i guess but the thing is if you're writing and directing and that's your baby i think the most important thing to remember is it's your baby no one else is going to care about or love your baby the way you love your baby and especially when you're working on a low budget and calling in favors. Um, you have to be prepared to wear so many hats and to make compromises. And you have to be prepared to also sometimes dig deeper into your pockets than you want to. Um, and not only into your financial po pockets, but really your emotional and your psychological pockets. I mean, it is not easy depending on the scales. Uh, you know, Happy Hour was its own, had its own set of challenges. Storm Chaser is a much more ambitious film. Um, and it really is more like a feature film. It's actually, I've had people say like, wow, that's more ambitious than a lot of people's first features, you know, in terms of just the number of casts, the number of locations, the intricacies of the story, the, uh, you know, the, the, the after, you know, the, the, the visual effects, you know, all of the posts, all of that. So, um, so you have to make tough decisions. And, and um, I think that, you know, stealing yourself for, it's going to be a ride. It's going to be a ride. It's not easy. It's not for the faint of heart. So I think that's the most important thing. If you're creating, writing and directing your own, you, you have to know that like not everyone's going to be as invested. And that can be frustrating at times because, you know, you're working around the clock. Can you expect other people to do that um, if you can only pay them so much, right? So it's a heavy, heavy lift. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I, guess that's, I guess that's the biggest thing, you know, really coming to terms with that. So like for me, um, <laughs> I, you know, all of the experiences and the challenges I've gone through, there are certain things like I'll see red flags certain times because the other thing too is sometimes people aren't the right people for your project. And it's not that they're bad people. It's just, that's the other thing is that really align yourself with people who, um, who are aligned with the story and with the intention behind the story too. And I would say for the most part, I've been blessed with that, but you know, there are hiccups along the way and there are things that happen and, um, and, you know, and I think we all learn tough lessons. That's how we learn. <laughs> Sadly, we, we usually don't learn that much from easy lessons. So does that, does that make sense to you both? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. then as um, an industry as a whole, obviously the world is quite unpredictable right now. Mm. As a filmmaker, what direction do you see the industry heading towards? And if you had one hope for the industry, one change you could make, what, what would that be? Mm. Big question. I, I think that uh, I think that the industry doesn't know what the industry, right? I mean, there I mean there are people who've been in the industry much longer than I have, and they don't have any idea of really what's going to happen. Uh, and I think in terms of Hollywood and uh, you know the studio system, sadly. Uh, you know, it has become this homogenization of, uh, you know, big blockbuster, uh, and there's nothing wrong with a Marvel movie or anything like that. I mean, I enjoy them as much as the next person, but um, I guess uh, one thing that I am um, inspired and, and, uh, and hopeful about is there does seem to be a real push to, uh, have diversity and inclusivity in front of and behind the and behind the camera and and there are new platforms um i you know within america it's still uh, i i wish what i would love to see is more support for independent artists 
you know, more support financially, um, more support in terms of uh, having more platforms where you can reach a wider audience um, and, and actually get support. I mean, I've been someone who has worked basically two careers for decades, <laughs> you know, in terms of like working a, a, a day job that was uh, at times a day job and other times a full-fledged, really like demanding career where I was traveling a lot, working brutal hours in production and then squeezing my writing in, you know, in the wee morning hours on the weekends. And at a certain point, I think you can only get so far doing that. Um, and it, and it's not really good for your health, um, you know, in a, in a certain way. So I would love to see there be support so that artists can actually earn a living wage and have time to create because we need time to create. You don't just sit down and like, oh, I'm going to write a feature film. No, it doesn't happen that way. And, and it is really hard. It's, it's not easy when you have to pay the rent, when you have to, you know, feed mouths at times, um, uh, you know, uh, and especially living in a city like New York, it's very expensive. So I guess that would be the one thing, speaking from an American, you know, a, a strictly American point of view, I do know that, like in Europe and, and other places, there are that you know there there are more grants there are there is more support for artists but i would be curious to hear from the two of you i mean do you think that has diminished with the uh evolution of you know more capitalism and 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 that kind of uh more you know uh praise of you know of like productivity productivity is only or success is only gauged by how much money you're making yeah, I think that's a big thing. We've been talking about that previous as well, that like, you know, our our value as human beings is so much put on like how successful we are, how much we work. Do we wake up at 4 a.m. to start working? Uh, all that stuff. I, I, think, I think it is a very American point of view, but because of the internet, I feel like our cultures, especially for young people, it's just merged so much. I feel like our sense of self and like this hustle culture all of that just comes together because of the internet um i don't know shania is more british than me i just moved here but <laughs> for me in during lockdown you kind of you know have time to reflect and you know know what's really important and it's not like the hustle culture you know that's not for everyone it's not right but, and i think in lockdown you know, we're still in lockdown. Um, yeah, I know. You realize what is important, really. Yeah, mm -hmm. but there's definitely a lot of grants. Um, I'm seeing that we have, you know, uh, a page here in Scotland, opportunities.scotland.co.uk, I think it's called, um, where they have all these grants and competitions you can apply to. And there's a lot of support from, you know, BFI, uh, the British yes. Film Institute. Um, yeah. And there's a lot of, institutions that do support independent filmmakers right and, and, I mean, there ways. are there are here in america but i i don't think that there is uh there are as many um as as in other places and um you know i think another another point is that there are still i mean we are making progress but i think that there still are you know, for lack of a better word, the gatekeepers who are saying, oh, there's no audience for that. Oh, there, nobody, you know, nobody wants to see a middle-aged woman who's blah, 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 or nobody wants to see whatever it is that, that it's something that we haven't seen before. Now, uh, and, and I, but I do believe that there are audiences. So I guess, you know, uh, for everyone listening, I mean, we just have to, you know, if you believe in a story and, and you're not seeing it and, you know, know that it will probably be a battle to get it out there. But um, unless we do that, we're just going to kind of keep seeing the same things over and over again. Um, so uh, I, I do think that British television is 
I mean, there's a lot of great television going on um, everywhere right now. That's just such an exciting medium for storytelling. But I think that, um, you know, England has always been ahead of America in terms of creating uh, amazing television. And they know when to get in and when to get out. Yeah. <laughs> and not like beat it to death season <laughs> season. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, it's probably just because we don't have, you know, we don't have a Hollywood. It's the big British movies are in collaborations with, you know, otherwise American studios. It's not, you don't have this constant, I don't know, like obviously London is a city for like the film industry in the UK, but it's not like the, it's not as, it's not like Hollywood where you specifically go there to make movies and you can't make movies other places. You can do that here in Glasgow. That's like a pretty big uh, thing here in Glasgow. And that's just, I don't know. I think there's a more collaborative sense mm. when it comes to filmmaking in the UK. You, you, know, you see it, it's collaborations between television studios and, Oh, oh, television studios, not just in the UK, but collaborations with studios across, uh, you know, in Denmark and Norway and Germany and France. It's right. But for the larger, yeah, the larger projects as well. Yeah, I agree. Um, so I'd like to see more of that here um, on this side of the pond. Mm -hmm. Just quickly before we wrap this up, I think what's really interesting about independent filmmaking is festivals. We love festivals and Storm Chaser has won and been selected for so many different festivals. I was scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. I was like, oh my God, is this going to end? Um, <laughs> <laughs> so just quickly, if you could kind of bring down some advice you'd give to filmmakers who are trying to submit their films to festivals, what should they expect? Is there a special strategy that they should engage in? Yeah, um, it's that's a really, you know, the festival thing uh, and Storm Chaser is only the second time. I mean, I went through the festival circuit with Happy Hour and knew nothing about, knew absolutely nothing when I did that. So it was just kind of, I was blindly throwing darts really. And, uh, you know, I'm still fascinated by the fact that Happy Hour uh, with its subject matter didn't make it into one single female filmmaker uh, festival. Yeah, I know. It's still, it kind of baffles me. Um, and it went to, I think, about 18 festivals. Um, with Storm Chaser and, and, and in general with festivals, I think the important thing to do when you're doing your film, really make sure that you budget for festivals. They are not inexpensive. It adds up, even if you're getting the early bird deadline. Now, and, and that's a tricky thing too, because it's like, you wanna go for those major festivals, but even if your film is an incredible short film, getting into like the Sundances, the South Bys, the Tribecas, the, you know, the TIFFs, I mean, it's like winning the lottery. So um, you should go for that. Um, but also I think sometimes people will rush and I did this actually, I rushed and sent a rough cut to a major festival, which in hindsight, I kind of wish I wouldn't have. Um, because even though they say, oh, we accept works in progress, it's never the best way to put your work forward. That said, had I sent the refined, refined version, I don't know whether we would have been accepted. So I think that do a lot of research, look at comparable films. I'm sure that many people talk about this, but look at comparable films, look at the festivals they've been in. Um, and then, you know, I think make a multi-tiered approach. So, uh, you know, of course, shoot for the stars. You should always do that because you never know. You never know. Um, because some of, some of festival selection, and this is what's, you know, and it can be very heartbreaking for people because I've been in this situation once and I've had friends who have been in the situation where you get a note from the programmer saying, we loved your film. It was in, and this was at a major festival and I've had it happen at a couple of like second tier festival. You know, we love your film. It was, I want you to know it was in the final round of consideration, but then we had to make some tough decisions. 
um, it's not a meritocracy necessarily, you know? So, uh, you know, they are programming based on themes sometimes, um, based on running time, all of that. So I can't speak for, fest I think festivals outside of America, I think there's a little bit more um, in terms of short films I'll talk about, there's a little bit more um, acceptance of longer form, you know, like Storm Chaser is 27, 12, um, so roughly 28 minutes. In the US, now we have gotten into a lot of festivals now with that longer running time, but I was told outright by a lot of people like, are you crazy? Like you're never gonna get into any festivals with that long of a short film. Um, and I think it has hurt us in other, in other ways because really in America, the sweet spot, what I've been told is between eight and 15 minutes. That's probably true across the world too, because you know they have they want to program as many. So, you know, if if you get into that final round and uh, and you have maybe a couple of programmers really advocating for your film, but it's up against maybe three films that they also really love that they could play those three films as opposed to your one film, then chances are those three films are going to get in and you're out. So it's a very tricky thing. You never know. Um, budget it, do a lot of research, and then, you know, based on your budget, try to be really smart about timing, hitting as many early birds. You're not going to be able to hit them all. Um, make your best work possible. Do not rush it for a festival deadline. And even though people say like, oh, it's so important where your film premieres, I think that's more true for features than for shorts. It is true for shorts too, but I think it's, you know, more wise because one of the things that I have learned with Storm Chaser is that, and we had a lovely, you know, premiere, a great festival, but it wasn't like a top tier festival, um, you know, um, and sometimes people say, oh, well, if you don't do a top tier festival, it kills the film. No, if it's good work, it's going to find its homes. You're going to find programmers who are like, oh, and then it's going to build its own momentum. So never rush something and sacrifice the quality of your vision or work. And then you just have to be smart about it. And you also, again, you're going to get a lot of no's and you're never going to know why. Uh, you know, I'm sure the two of you have been at festivals maybe where you and your friends have had films that didn't get into that festival and you see some of the films in the festival and you kind of like some of them you're like oh wow that's amazing but then others you're like huh <laughs> I don't get it like why did this film get in and ours didn't you know so uh, so compare and despair you know as they say like try not to do that it's human nature to do that but there are just so many factors so I, I, I hope that that helps, um, you know, and, and I think that um, every film is different. And, and that's the thing with creating any type of art. You really never know how it's going to be accepted, <laughs> you know. Um, you have to kind of create it and then uh, let go of expectations and trust that it's going to find its audience and that the people who it resonates with, it's going to. And no matter how great any piece of art is, it's never going to resonate with everybody. And it's always going to have people who don't get it or who, who don't like it, who get triggered by it, you know, whatever. <laughs> so, yeah. Yes, exactly. And every now, every now it gets you closer to our yes. And one question we ask all our um, guests, if you could shout out any woman who inspires you, whether that's personal or professional, Oh, everyone gets stuck on this question because I bet you have a list of women you want to shout out right now. I know that's I I know. Um, can I cheat and do one personal, one professional, really fast? Yeah, we'll allow you. <laughs> um, well, personally, I would have to say my mother, uh, Dorothy Claggett, who is going to be ninety-two this year, and has been such an advocate of me and my work through the years. She 
and I guess professionally too, because she was really the gateway to my acting experiences because she would perform character roles in, you know, professional summer stock. And so, um, so she's always inspired me to follow my heart and she's my biggest fan. And just the fact that she is so strong and so mentally with it and, and open to learning too, I think, um, you know, I'm, I, I'm just always, I'm so grateful for her, uh, for support. And also as, as an elder who, um, you know, I hope I can be, you know, if I make it that far, um, which I hope I do, that I can still be as open-minded and willing to learn and, you know, uh, and, and, and present and, uh, and available to give support to people, because I think she also is, you know, has really shown me um, uh, how to be in community too, you know, and, and, and take care of people and, and that friends are so important um, to us as well as family. And then professionally, I would have to say, uh, you know, Julianne Moore, who I've had the privilege of, I, I met her uh, many years ago um, when I was acting and um, someone who has of course, had such a stellar career, is uh, such a brilliant actress and artist, and who has, uh, with all the things she's experienced and all the fame, who is such a grounded, um, just incredible human being, who also um, uses, uh, I guess, her you know, her, her place in society to do good. I mean, she's such a, a fierce advocate for, you know, anti-gun laws and, and for children's rights, um, for, you know, victims of abuse, their rights. Um, and in terms of really turning around some of the, the politics going on in our country. Um, so that she would be another uh, woman that I just tremendously admire, and I'm I'm just deeply grateful that I have both of them in my life and have been able to experience them firsthand and from a distance, watching them, you know, uh, interact with other people. Yeah. Well, it has been an absolute pleasure talking with you. So insightful. Um, before we go, where can people find you? Where can they support your work? Anything you might want to plug or promote? Uh, well, um, Storm Chaser is still out on the festival circuit. Um, the best way to follow the film really at this point, and, you know, because we are doing some virtual, uh, because everything, as you both know, is virtual. We're, um, you know, in New York right now, we're not really under lockdown, but we definitely, um, uh, there are many things that we can't do <laughs> still. Um so um, the best way to find Storm Chaser would be to follow me on Facebook. Um, I post a lot of those festivals and links there. Um, I'm Gretel Claggett on Facebook. Um, so please follow me there. Uh, there's also a Storm Chaser Facebook page. I'm not as great at this point just because of overwhelm about updating that. On Instagram, I also post at Gretel Marlena. So G-R-E-T-L. M-A-R-L-E-N-E, -E, and then at Facebook at Gretel Claggett, G-R-E-T-L-C-L-A-G-G-E-T-T. -E and then also please um, check out my website, gretelclaggett.com. And there is a contact page, so you can reach me via email that way. So um, if you, you know, if you have questions or uh, want to get in touch, um, you know, I uh, I, I welcome hearing from people. Um, so, uh, and then within gretelclaggett.com, you can go to the happy hour. You know, it's got kind of all of my work connected there. So you can check out Storm Chaser film, Flip the Switch, Happy Hour, Monsoon Solo, etc. Great. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Thank you so much. Wonderful. Yes. Yeah, and uh, and and best of luck to you uh, in the UK. I when when are you guys coming out of lockdown? Oh, will uh, we ever know? We do not know. Probably never. Probably never. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Feels that way. I I hope. Well, I hope that you know. Uh, I hope that 
as a as a global community, we can all come together and uh, kind of get through this and uh, and you know create some new systems and mm -hmm. and move forward. So definitely. Yeah. So I wish you both the best and, and it's been just a pleasure and an honor and thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Have a, have a great day. If you would like to see more about women in the film industry, go follow us on Instagram at Making It Women in Film and check out our brand new website, womeninfilm.co.uk. We're posting lots of recommendations, reviews, discussions, statistics, all that good stuff. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Making It Women in Film. Don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss the next one. See you next week.